This episode has 6,650 words. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the zeroth episode of the Beyond Podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for anyone who ever wanted to have an Ouroboros as a pet. Hi, everyone. My name is Vadim, and I will be your host for this podcast. Now, before I fully introduce myself, I just want to briefly talk about what this podcast is going to be about, or at least what I hope it will be about if this actually works out, if everyone is actually interested in this topic. And that topic is Meta. Not Meta the company, but Meta the concept. And the big question that I'm trying to both ask and answer here is, well, would everyone likely consume obscure meta entertainment? By the way, the previous sentence that I just said, the would everyone likely, uh, that sentence contains an acrostic. The first letter of every word spells out the word welcome. So welcome. Now, for me personally, um, I've been fascinated by meta topics for as long as I can remember. Certainly before I knew that it was like a thing, right? That things like self-similarity, recursion, just general aboutness. Uh, all of these concepts have names, and very smart people have thought and discussed these concepts for quite a while. But for me, well, you know, when I was a teenager in the 90s, I would loiter around places like uh, Circuit City and uh, Fry's Electronics, may they rest in peace. And I would do this thing where you take a video camcorder and then you hook it up to a monitor, and then you aim the cam camcorder right back at the monitor. Have you ever done this? Do you know what this looks like? Uh, well, it wasn't until years later that I read a book called I Am a Strange Loop by a person called Douglas Hofstadter. And if you're not familiar with Hofstadter, uh, he's an American scholar. He's kind of a polymath. Uh, he got his PhD in physics, but then went on to explore many other fields such as philosophy and cognitive science. And uh, heads up, I'm going to talk a lot about this person's ideas and uh, books on this podcast. So in the book, I Am a Strange Loop, Hofstadter talks about also being fascinated with this funky recursive image that forms when a camera is aimed back at a screen that it's actually connected to. Now, this effect is sometimes called a video feedback loop. Uh, you can find examples of this online. And uh, Hofstadter was also fascinated by it. And so if you ever messed around with a setup like that, well, you're just like me, and we're both just like Douglas Hofstadter, therefore we must be as smart as he is, right? QED. By the way, if you like the webcomic XKCD, uh, the cartoon number 917 has a very nice joke about Hofstadter, and it just so happens that XKCD is another great source of meta-ness, and we'll be mentioning this webcomic a lot here on this podcast. All right, but like what concepts are we actually going to talk about here? Like what topics count as quote-unquote meta? Where do we begin? Well, it's a very long list, right? So we've got recursion, self-similarity, fractals, quines, Turing machines. We've got self-reference in art and literature and just generally in entertainment. We've got topics like super rationality, the game of nomic, DNA and living organisms, emulation, Simulation, the set of all sets that don't contain themselves, meta jokes, breaking the fourth wall, jumping out of the system, Godot's theorems, von Neumann machines, 
Russell's paradox, liar's paradox, the interesting number paradox, and lots of other cool logical paradoxes, the halting problem, the Chinese room, emergent properties, computer programs, human minds, and of course this podcast. Are you telling us absolutely everything? Whew, okay, gotta catch my breath here. All right, and of course, if in my commentary on meta topics, I forget a subject or I omit a subject, and then you email me and remind me of something that's meta-related, well, that would be meta-commentary, and I would be compelled to expand the previous list. By the way, this would be a good time to plug the podcast email. It's thebeyondpod at gmail.com. Again, that's thebeyondpod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Okay, but like, why meta topics? Well, I'm afraid I don't really have a compelling explanation. Like Marge Simpson said, I just think they're neat. Now, there's lots of self-referential humor on The Simpsons too, so let's add that to the list. But there's just something really deeply fascinating about self-reference. Uh, it can lead to some very interesting puzzles and paradoxes. And of course, we may just owe our existence and even our consciousness to the fact that we live in a universe that supports such strange loops. So here's the format. Uh, in each episode, we will go over a couple of interesting topics. And of course, I'm counting on listeners to tell me what you think is interesting. But as you have seen, there should be no shortage of things to talk about. So please don't make me repeat that list from earlier. I'm, I'm still catching my breath from that. Okay, but to get us started on the first topic, let's talk about this episode, like the one you're listening to right now. Let's consider how you're consuming this content. Okay, now you may be reading a transcript of this episode on thebeyondpod.com. That's thebeyondpod.com. But I'm going to assume that the majority of you are listening to the podcast on some kind of device. And unless you've purchased this episode on a vinyl record, uh, that device is probably some kind of a modern digital computer, such as a desktop, laptop, or a smartphone. Oh, they have the internet on computers now. So your computer whatever form it has, is probably streaming the digital audio content from some kind of server. Lots of information is flying back and forth. Okay, but let's simplify this scenario. Let's assume that you've downloaded the entirety of this episode to a file that is now stored on your device. And that file is probably some kind of compressed audio format like MP3 or some proprietary standard. And just so we're all on the same page, let's say the file is some finite sequence of binary digits or bits, just a long sequence of ones and zeros. So like if this episode takes up 10 megabytes of space, that makes for 10 million-ish bytes or 80 million-ish bits. And of course your computer has software that can interpret these bits and reconstruct audio from them that closely matches to what I recorded here in my so-called studio. And if this audio is played back through a speaker, well then you can listen to what I'm saying and even if you don't speak the language, which is in this case some form of U.S. English, you can still perceive that you're hearing a human voice. Now let's say that for whatever reason, I decided to go above and beyond just releasing a digital podcast on the internet. And in some kind of misguided quest for immortality, uh, I wanted to express this podcast in some kind of ridiculously grandiose way. Okay, so here's what I do. I go to the beach and I gather up lots of rocks and seashells. And I'm gonna need tens of millions of them to pull this off, okay? And then what I do is I take this 10 megabyte file and I look at the individual ones and zeros that make it up 
and I just start laying them out on the beach. So for ones, I use rocks, and for zeros, I use seashells. And I lay them out in a long row going across the beach. And then when I run out of space, I start a new row, and so on and so on, until the entire contents of this file are expressed in the sand in this like very long, ridiculous sequence of rocks and seashells. Okay, now comes the question. Can somebody, at a later point in time, actually make sense of these symbols in the sand? Can somebody like deduce what they represent and then through some very clever reasoning figure out a way to turn the seashells and rocks into data and then turn that data into sound and then actually listen to this episode? Now, this future person or some biological descendant of Homo sapiens or maybe an alien or, or an artificial intelligence, like how much would they have to know to pull this off? How much could they uncover? And then what could I do or what, what could we do to make this message in the sand as intelligible as possible? Okay, so that's the challenge. How can we minimize the amount of prior knowledge and common cultural references that are required to decode the message? Can the message itself contain a recipe to make itself understandable? Is there such a thing as a true self-interpreting message? Okay, but let's just take a step back here. Like, who needs this, right? So, sure, it might be an interesting topic to puzzle over, but does anyone care? Well, it turns out the answer is yes. Uh, scientists used to care about this. I mean, they still care, but they used to, too. We could probably dedicate a whole episode of a podcast to the Voyager Golden Records. Remember those? How about the Pioneer Plaque? And let's not forget about the Arecibo message. These are all attempts by humanity to send messages out into the universe. And these messages may never be seen or heard by anyone, but in the off chance that they are, can they be interpreted and understood? Uh, needless to say, a lot of thought went into this. And if you're a fan of science fiction like myself, then maybe you enjoyed stories like The Three-Body Problem by uh, Lucy Chin or Contact by Carl Sagan, they should have said the poet. So beautiful. Beautiful. So beautiful. Or the story of your life by Te Chiang, or their film adaptations. And I can honestly say that Contact specifically was one of those formative movies for me personally, but more on that later. So in the novel Three Body Problem, uh, and I'm going to give away a very minor spoiler here, so skip, uh, I don't know, 15 seconds ahead if you don't want to hear this. But in that story, there's an Earth scientist who sends a message to some nearby intelligent aliens. And she uses something that's in the novel called a self-interpreting code. And the idea is that this message is written in a code that could be understood by an intelligent civilization that has an understanding of mathematics and physics and just concepts that are believed to be universal. And in the movie slash novel Contact, humanity receives a message that is similarly wrapped up in mathematics. Those are primes. Two, three, five, seven. Those are all prime numbers. And there's no way that's a natural phenomenon. Holy okay, shit. Okay, let's just calm down. On the other hand, in The Story of Your Life, or the movie Arrival, that's based on that novel, uh, we learn to communicate with aliens by actually interacting with them. And that even that proves to be very challenging. So the question is, how do you communicate when interaction is not even possible and you don't even know who you're communicating with? So going back to the practical side of this, 
Like, we don't really know, I mean, not really, how to send lasting messages into the human future, never mind some hypothetical aliens. Like, take, for example, the storage of nuclear waste. Let's say we want to stash the waste generated by nuclear plants in a very secure, long-term way. Now, okay, sure, we can pick some site on Earth, dig a big hole or dig a tunnel into the side of a mountain, and then stick the nuclear waste in there in some very durable container, and then cover it all up, put a big tall fence around the location, and then put up a sign that says, Danger Zone, in every human language and writing system. Danger Zone! And then we could also include some internationally accepted symbols for radioactivity. And then once we do this, of course, then we can relax, sit back in our rocking chairs, and celebrate this arrangement by the adding of chocolate to milk. Okay, but so obviously this isn't going to work, right? Certainly not in any kind of future-proof way. Certainly not in, a, not in a way that can like span the fall and rise of civilizations. But let's consider a much simpler task and go back to my seashells on the beach. Now, if you recall, to satisfy my vanity, I took this episode, downloaded it as an MP3 or whatever format, and then I wrote down the ones and zeros that make up this data using rocks and seashells. So when I'm done, I find another modern human and I say, hey, fellow modern human, over there on the beach, there's an MP3 file expressed with rocks and seashells. Can you import this data back into some kind of electronic state and then listen to the audio? So that sounds like an easy task, right? Oh, does that confuse you? This person has access to all modern hardware and software. They know exactly what to expect. There is no need to puzzle out what the data represents. This is just a straightforward, maybe a little tedious, but very straightforward mechanical exercise, right? Well, there's a couple of important things that I didn't mention to my fellow modern human. By the way, that's how we talk to each other. We call each other fellow modern humans. Okay, so they can find the beach. They can see the seashells on the rocks. And the seashells are shiny, by the way. But I didn't actually say what's a one and what's a zero. I also didn't say where the message started. Now, assuming I laid out the symbols in a rectangular grid and you, you'd have to know like where to start and which way to scan. And without this prior information, you would have to either make an educated guess or try all the combinations. For example, you could start with each corner of the rectangle, then try to reconstruct the bit sequence by reading left to right or top to bottom or vice versa. And of course, this doesn't cover like zigzag patterns or spirals or anything, you know, any arbitrary way that I could arrange the rocks and seashells. And you still don't know what's a one and what's a zero. But let's assume for argument's sake that it's not too difficult for our fellow modern human to experiment with the data. Like, let's say they did something clever and like photographed the beach from up above, and then they quickly converted the images into a grid of symbols. So maybe they use the letter S for seashell and R for rock. Now they write a little bit of code that converts this grid into a data file based on whatever assumptions you make. Uh, we could make a file where the data starts in the leftmost corner closest to the water as you face the ocean. And in another file, we could start in the opposite corner. And for each one of these possibilities, we will try one where we read the rows from left to right, and another one where we read columns moving away from the water, you know, further away from the beach, and so on. So we will have four guesses for which corner to start from, and then two guesses from there for which direction to go in, and then two guesses for whether a seashell represents a one or a zero. 
Now, our computer can quickly produce outputs for all the 16 permutations of these parameters, right? So we have four times two times two, 16 choices. And then 15 of these will be unreadable by our MP3 player. Yes, yes, yes. You sound like a broken MP3. But one of them will be a valid MP3 file. And we're done, mostly. So even though we underspecified the problem, the actual number of possibilities was small. And I don't know, let's call this combinatorial ambiguity. So like, even though the person decoding the message had to, had like nearly perfect knowledge of what to expect, they still had to try a relatively small number of combinations before the message was comprehensible. And as long as the combinatorial ambiguity is low, yes, it requires a little bit of work, but it's not fundamentally a deal breaker. Now I said we're mostly done. Why mostly? Is it enough to know a one versus a zero and the direction of the message? Well, almost. Now recall that in real computers, we organize bits into bytes with eight bits to a byte. And one thing that we didn't discuss was how we actually write down the bits with our seashells and rocks. Now, binary numbers are no more mysterious than the normal decimal numbers that we're all used to. And for example, by convention, when we write down a number like 1,234, we write the digits from left to right with the most significant digit, in this case, the thousands. Uh, we write that first, then hundreds, then tens, and so on. And then by a different convention, if you're writing in a left to right language, then you also write the numbers just like the digits from left to right. Does that make sense? Oh, does that confuse you? So for example, if you want to write the numbers 12 and then 34 in that order, in let's say a English sentence, then you would write down the digits of 12 from left to right, and then you would move your hand further to the right, and then you would write three and four. But there's actually two conventions at play here, one for the digits and then one for the overall flow. Now it might be convenient to have these two flow in the same direction, but this is not universal. For example, if I wanted to write a sentence in Arabic that says, I have children ages 12, 15, and 18, I would be writing the message from right to left, even though the individual numbers would be written from left to right. The sequence of these numbers would be from right to left. Can you picture it? Good. And the same goes for our binary digits. If my overall message is written on the beach from left to right, I may also choose to arrange it so that the most significant bit of each byte starts off on the left. Now, sorry for a minor digression here, but this is very similar to the concept of endianness in computer engineering, but just at the bit level. But in any case, if our fellow modern human knows we're dealing with bytes, they can try the bits in both directions until the message works. So really, instead of the original 16 combinations, we might have to try 32. No big deal. So, okay, we've accomplished the task, right? By ensuring that somebody has nearly perfect information about our methodology, we were able to take this podcast and write it out digitally in this very weird but sort of functional way. And somebody else was able to work with this message. But of course, this is also terribly contrived, right? There is no way this would work without a lot of prior information sharing between us and whoever wants to decode the message. If our recipient did not know that these bits represented an, an MP3 or whatever, it would have been just devilishly difficult, maybe even impossible to figure out what's going on. And this is despite all the math that goes into MP3s like linear predictive coding and discrete cosine transforms and all these cool awesome algorithms that are used to compress audio.
So the natural thing to say here is that any kind of data compression scheme goes against our stated goals of being understood. Data compression kind of does the opposite of what we want, right? We want to put obvious recognizable patterns into the message, something that somebody could pick up on like, hey, this sequence of seashells and rocks seems to repeat over and over. It must mean something. This means something. But compressing data hides the patterns actually quite deliberately because the whole point of data compression is to find patterns and then express them in a more compact form to get rid of repetition. So let's say we still really wanted to send an audio message into the future. So how do we write it down in a more natural way? By the way, in my notes, I wrote down the word natural in quotes. So like, what is a good way to describe sound without actually making sound? Well, we know that sound is vibration. Something vibrates and pushes on the air or water or whatever around it. And then the vibrations travel as waves and eventually get into your ears. Faster vibrations mean higher pitch. Stronger vibrations mean louder sounds. Now, let's picture a very simple steady vibration, like a musical note. Imagine a membrane like your eardrum or a speaker just moving back and forth and back and forth in a steady rhythm. Now, let's imagine we make a graph of this on paper, uh, and what we graph is how far is the membrane moving from its rest position. And then as we move from left to right on the page, that's our x-axis, and this represents the passage of time. And then we draw the position of the membrane on the y-axis. So like a pure tone at one frequency is going to look like a very familiar sine wave. We can start at zero, then we smoothly go up, then we curve back down, back to zero, then we go negative, then we reach the bottom, then we curve back up, back to zero, and so on and so on. And if our piece of paper represents one second in time, we can count how many times our wave made a full cycle. And the number of cycles in a second gives us hertz, or the frequency of the sound. Now, the human voice has frequencies of around 200 hertz, and like a dog whistle can go as high as 50,000 hertz, you know, give or take. Okay, well, how do we, like, write down this information? For example, if our pure tone wave lasted for one second and was exactly 200 hertz, well, we could write down exactly that, something along the lines of, from time zero to time one second, a tone of 200 hertz. And this would actually be quite a compact and efficient way of representing this information. And we'll get back to that method a little bit later. But for now, how about the following alternative method? So picture that sine wave uh, drawn on the paper. Now let's say we take a ruler and we put it vertically on our piece of paper. And then we measure the height of the wave write down the number, and then move our ruler just some fixed distance to the right, and then repeat this process. So when the wave dips below zero, the numbers become negative. So we might write down a sequence like zero, three, five, three, zero, negative three, negative five, and so on. Now picture these numbers plotted as dots on the same page. Now the dots are not connected, but if you kind of squint at them, you can see that they resemble the shape of the original wave. And if we move our ruler only a tiny bit each time we want to make a measurement, the dots get closer and closer together. And if we make that distance really tiny, then the dots will get so close together that they start to almost blend in into the exact shape of the original sine wave that we're measuring. Now, the amount that we move the ruler along the x-axis in each step, that's our sampling rate. 
So if we move it such that each step represents one one hundredth of a second, that's a sampling rate of 100 hertz. Now we need to pick a sampling rate that's actually reasonable. So like how often do you have to measure the wave to capture the human voice? Well, we could experiment with different rates and figure out what the minimum is where the audio is intelligible. But it turns out we don't have to do that because there's already some beautiful math out there called the Nyquist-Shannon Sampling Theorem. And it basically just tells us that we need to sample at twice the highest frequency that we want to capture. So it turns out that the human voice has quite a range and that frequency can be as high as 3 to 4 kilohertz. So what we need is at least twice that, so let's say 8 kilohertz, to properly record human speech. And then, you know, if this podcast should have some music or sound effects, well, then we might have to go even higher. So really, rather than reinventing the bicycle here, let's just go with the convention and use 44,100 hertz. Why this number? Well, I mean, no specific reason other than it's been so common in the industry for about 40 years now. And it's the like the audio standard for compact discs. And it will certainly be good enough to capture this podcast. And I guess last but not least, but here's a geeky fact for you, but the number 44,100 has the property of being equal to 2 squared times 3 squared times 5 squared times 7 squared. That's the first four prime numbers squared. Uh, sorry about that, you know, useless little bit of trivia, but I thought it was a little f fun little factoid. Okay, so let's review. So we will measure the sound of this podcast 44,100 times a second, and each measurement will be a number that we will write down. And of course, we know how to write numbers down in any system we want. And if we're going to do this again with seashells and rocks on the beach, well, we need to record the numbers in binary. Easy. But again, we must figure out a convention, like how many symbols, so how many seashells and rocks, represent a single number. Now, normally when we write down everyday numbers on a piece of paper or a chalkboard, there's really no issue. Like, let's say we want to write down the numbers 57, 34, and negative 1. Well, we just write that down and leave some space between them to make it clear that it's 57 and 34, not 5,734. So in a way, the physical space that we leave between the numbers is a symbol in itself, and it's implicitly part of our system. But if we limit ourselves to just two symbols, so one and zero, or rock and seashell, then we don't have such a thing as a space. So how do we tease apart adjacent numbers? Well, one simple way to do this is to give each number some fixed number of digits, or symbols. For example, back in our decimal system, we could just declare that all numbers have exactly three digits. So if you want to write down a number like 513, well, no problem. And if you want to write down the number 22, well, that's also easy. Just write a zero in the front, and then you get 022. And if you want to write down the number seven, well, you just write two zeros or 007. Some would say 007, but that would be a different podcast. Now, using three digits like this is fine if you want to represent numbers between 0 and 999, because in all this gives us 1,000 different numbers to play with. We can write down a bunch of three-digit numbers in sequence, and since we know that each one occupies exactly three spots, then there's no ambiguity about which, when, where each number ends and where the next number begins. So okay, let's do the same for our sound data. For example, let's use 16 symbols to write down the number. Why 16? 
Well, 16 binary bits allows us to represent 65,536 different loudness levels. And it turns out that that's good enough for what we're doing here. And yes, it's another well-established convention in digital audio recording. Of course, we need half of those numbers to be negative to represent the parts where our sound wave goes below zero, but more on that later. All right, so let's go back to the beach. We've got a lot of work to do. So again, we're writing a message to humans in the far future, and we can assume that they will understand mathematics and physics, but we're making no assumptions about the knowledge of any modern standards like the MP3. So we have two goals, right? We want to take the audio of this podcast and write it down using rocks and seashells and embed some clues in the message about what the data represents. And these clues themselves have to be representable as rocks and seashells in the sand. So like the fact that the message is binary, like let's take it for granted that that will be obvious. There's exactly two symbols and they just go on for a long time. So the implication that the message is binary is pretty strong. But what is being encoded? So the first thing we should try to convey is that the message will, ma will be made up of 16-bit numbers, and therefore the number 16 is important itself. But how do we convey the importance of a particular number before we've established how the numbers are represented? Well, there's lots of things we could try. For example, we could lay out a sequence of 16 rocks, then 16 seashells, then 16 rocks again, and so on. And then we could repeat this rock seashell pattern exactly 16 times. And this just might work in saying, hey, 16 is important. But unfortunately, it doesn't convey anything useful about the representation of binary numbers. Okay, so what if instead we did this? For the first 16 symbols of the message, we lay out 14 seashells, one rock, and then one seashell. And if you're familiar with binary numbers, you can immediately spot the number 2, which is written as a 1 and a 0, plus the 14 zeros in front due to our convention. And then for the next 16 symbols, we will write down 14 seashells and 2 rocks. So that's 1, 1 in binary, which is equal to 3. And then for the next 16 symbols, we will arrange things to make the binary numbers for 5 and then 7. You see where this is going? We're expressing prime numbers in binary. Why prime numbers? Well, prime numbers are considered to be one of those universal truths that any mathematical civilization would immediately recognize apart from noise. So scientists like Frank Drake and Carl Sagan, as well as the folks over at SETI, so the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, they have for many years discussed how a message from aliens could be recognizable by the use of primes. And similarly, we would use primes when sending a message out to hypothetical aliens. As far as we know, natural sources do not produce processes that look like primes. Like, for example, a spinning neutron star might send out a very steady pulse that feels mechanical in how precise it is. But we understand these so-called pulsars to be natural objects. But if instead we received a message from space that made two beeps, and then three beeps, and then five, seven, eleven, and thirteen, and so on, it would be a pretty irrefutable sign of intelligence. Now, in the novel and movie Contact, which again I absolutely love, the alien message comes in over radio, and it's heralded by this sequence of prime numbers to get our attention, and it works really well. Go watch the movie right now if you haven't seen it already. I'll wait. Are you back? All right, good. So let's put 
numbers at the beginning of the message on the beach, starting with two, three, five, and so on. How many should we write down? Well, why not the first 16 prime numbers from two through 53? This part of the message will kill several birds with a few stones and seashells. First, prime numbers are really expected to stand out. Secondly, it teaches the reader of the message how we represent values. Each number is exactly 16 bits, and we lay the bits out from left to right, starting with the most significant bit. When the reader moves on to the next part of the message, they can confidently start reading off 16 symbols at a time and converting these into numbers. So, so far, so good. But, like, what do we actually say now that we're done with the ahem, metadata? Like, do we immediately transition from the 16 primes to the digital sound of the podcast? Well, maybe. The trouble is that there's nothing in the message so far to hint about what the numbers mean. By the way, in my transcript, the word mean appears in italics. So our future reader is curious and persistent, and they might tr try to draw the numbers in the message out on some kind of, in some kind of visual way. And if by any luck they plot the numbers as a two-dimensional graph, they would see something that looks inherently wavy and sound-like. Maybe it will remind them of sound, or is that too big of an intuitive leap? And is there something we can do to really hint at the truth? Well, why not give our audience an actual recognizable wave pattern? So let's say for the first few seconds of this podcast, we could include some kind of pure tone at some arbitrary frequency, like let's say 440 hertz. I mean, any pure tone will do, as long as we can sample it effectively with our chosen sampling rate. So our message recipient looks at the numbers and starts sketching them out uh, on a piece of paper to see what shape they represent. So let's make up some numbers here. Like, let's say we start with 0, then 25, 50, 70, 86, 96, 100. That's, that's the loudest that we get. Then we go back to 86, 70, and then back down to 0. And then what? Well, the next sequence of numbers looks the same except for they're all negative. Except we haven't actually talked about negative numbers yet. They should be easy, right? Just put a negative sign in front of the number. Except we can't because we only have seashells and rocks. So how do you make a binary negative number? Well, again, it comes down to convention. Now, there's a few common methods used in real computer systems, but let's just pick the easiest one. If a number is negative, we take the very first bit and make it a 1. So, for example, if we had 4-bit numbers, a positive 2 would be 0, 0, 1, 0, and a negative 2 would be 1, 0, 1, 0. This is called the sign magnitude notation, and it's not commonly used for doing calculations on computers because there's other, like, better notations that make it easier to do arithmetic, like, for example, 2's complement. But we're not trying to make math easy. We're trying to make it really easy to understand what a negative number looks like. So let's go back to our beautiful wave pattern. So we went from 0 to 25, eventually we got to 100, then back down to 25, and then back to 0. The next number in the sequence would be negative 25. And if our message reader sees this number, what they will see is 16 symbols. So let's make the first one a rock to represent the sign bit. And then a bunch of symbols that they already know look like a 25 from earlier except for the earlier version of 25 started with a seashell instead of a rock. 
And if our reader is plotting these numbers, they already probably have a strong sense that it looks like a sine wave. And when the sine wave gets back to zero, hopefully they will make the intuitive leap that the next number in the sequence must be negative. Okay, so we have this audio data that starts with a pure sine wave. Now, this accomplishes two things. It hopefully hints that the message contains sound and somebody should listen to it. And it also teaches about how we represent negative numbers. So is this enough? Can we start with the actual podcast? Well, one thing you probably noticed is that we never actually specified our sampling rate. Like, there's a sine wave, and it looks pure and very familiar, but what span of time does it represent? And here's where it gets kind of tricky. In order to specify a frequency, you implicitly need to have a shared concept of time. Like, for example, 440 hertz means that the wave repeats 440 times in a second. But what's a second? Or a meter or a kilogram? My car gets 40 rods to the hogshead, and that's the way I like it! All of these things make sense to us, but they're completely arbitrary. And now, spoiler alert, I am planning to completely sidestep this complication, and I'll explain why shortly. But, like, if you absolutely wanted to communicate a concept like length or distance, how would you do it? So, back in 1974, on November 16th, uh, we humans sent out a radio message into deep space from the Arecibo Radio Telescope, made rest in peace. And that message had a lot of data, and, like, we could devote a whole podcast episode to this. But one of the things it tried to convey is, like, how big is an average human? So then you do need some concept of length and distance, right? So our old friends Carl Sagan and Frank Drake designed the message, and there's a spot in the message where they encoded the number 14 in binary. And if you multiply 14 by the wavelength of the radio signal, that was 126 millimeters, uh, you multiply it by 14, you get something like 1.76 meters, which is roughly the height of an average human. So the data in the message had to be combined with how the message was transmitted. Now, how meta is that? So, like, we could do something similar for our message on the beach and have some self-referential property where a number encoded in the message connects to some external factor about the message. Uh, for example, the spacing between rocks and seashells, or the size of the beach, or the sea level at the beach, or whatever. But remember how I was going to, like, avoid this complication? Here's why. I deliberately made our problem simpler by saying that we're making a message for future humans, and therefore we can lean into some implicitly shared assumptions. So, for example, if the future humans see that the data looks like sound, and then they try to figure out the frequency of the sound, they can just do some trial and error. And since they know how the human voice sounds, eventually they'll deduce that the message carries a human voice, and then they can kind of tune the playback speed until the voice sounds, you know, natural. Of course, that's assuming that our vocal cords haven't evolved into something completely different by then. Maybe they will make me sound like a chipmunk, and that will just be natural to them? I don't know. And remember our pure tone from the start of the message? Now, I had mentioned a value of 440 hertz. Now, that just happens to have significance in modern music. Uh, it's a pitch that's used for tuning as the tuning standard for the musical note of A. So maybe, just maybe, as the future humans tune the playback of this message, they will arrive at a point where 
the sine wave plays back at its original frequency. And on top of that, as a bonus, my voice also sounds natural. Of course, assuming the 440 hertz tuning frequency is still culturally significant. And of course, at this point, you might rightfully say like, okay, so we can't assume that future humans know what a second is, but they still tune their piano the same way we do now. And yeah, that would be a completely fair criticism. Okay, so let's just review everything we did so far. So we managed to convey uncompressed digital audio using a medium of binary symbols. We started off with the first 16 primes and simultaneously that teaches about the encoding of 16-bit integers and also expresses the number, the importance of the number 16. We then included a recognizable numeric pattern, which represents a sine wave. And we represented the sine wave and all subsequent sound in what's known as the time domain. So we explicitly write down how loud the sound is at each point in time. Now, we could have also used the frequency domain, which would be something like the example I gave earlier of just saying, from this time to this time, there was a frequency of such and such. It just, I felt that the time domain representation would be a little bit more intuitive to decode. Also, the pure sine wave simultaneously hints that the content of the message is sound, and it could also be used to tune the audio playback of the message. And it also teaches us about the representation of negative numbers. And finally, the audio of the podcast itself, um, assuming that our dear future human got this far. So yay, we did it. Of course, the giant elephant on the beach, assuming that elephants still exist, is that the message is just some person speaking a language that, well, let's face it, will be long gone, even in the not-too-distant future. I mean, languages change a lot over time, just like try reading Beowulf in the original Old English. So yes, maybe through all our clever work, somebody is listening to these words. But can they work out what any of this actually means? Again, the word means is italicized in my notes. That's a problem that I'm really not yet prepared to tackle. So if you're still listening, thank you so much for sticking with me so far. This problem of crafting a message that tries to explain itself, well, it's very meta, which is why I love it so much. And it's also very, very tricky. Like, I would be happy to do a whole episode talking about just the Voyager Golden Record or the Pioneer Plaque or the Arecibo message or so on. And people have been very, very clever in their approach to this conundrum. But it's just that we may never know, I mean, not really, if any of these attempts actually worked. I mean, you could make the statement, it's possible to make a self-interpreting message that could be understood by a non-human intelligence. And that could be a valid scientific hypothesis. It's just that it's very hard to like, prove or falsify it in practice. I mean, I suppose you could do an experiment where you have like one group of scientists come up with like a clever message, and then another group of scientists tries to decode it. But like, if they succeed, what does that really prove? Because the implicit shared assumptions due to the fact that you have humans on both sides of the communication, it just means that it's very hard to separate our humanity from our ability to understand the message. And if they fail to decode it, what does that prove? That like there's no hope of ever communicating this way with aliens? Now, in the movie Arrival that I mentioned earlier, the one that's based on the book, uh, A Story of Your Life, uh, the story stresses the importance of direct interaction in order to establish an understanding. And even that proved difficult. Go see that movie too. 
So imagine trying to make yourself understood when you can only rely on sending a message one way, like let's say the, the Voyager spacecraft, and you're not going to be around to help the message make sense if anyone ever finds it. It really makes you think. So, was any of this interesting? Please let me know at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. Tell me what you liked or didn't like. Tell me what meta topics are interesting to you. What would you like to hear more about? I'll be posting updates to the beyondpod.com website, and when I make another episode, it should hopefully be easy to get in the podcasting application of your choice. Thank you so much again for listening. See you next time when we will talk about quines, emulation, and other fun meta topics. Until next time, goodbye.